This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again, Sam Chandon. Welcome back to The Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, Series 6M Channel 111, powered by the Wharton School. I am your host, Sam Chandon. House prices in the United States have risen significantly over the course of the current economic expansion, in most cases, faster than incomes. In part, the erosion of affordability reflects that we have seen very little in the way of new single-family construction in the United States. Over the last several weeks, uh, guests on the program, including the chief economist of the National Association of Home Builders and others, have described some of the constraints on home building activity, including scarcity of land, labor, uh, and loans to finance land acquisition and home building. In a new report from the Brookings Institution, authors Dr. Jenny Schutz and Cecile Murray address the question of the housing shortage, how it's measured, and how it's influencing prices and American families' capacity for home ownership. With me to discuss that research, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the authors, Dr. Jenny Schutz. Jenny is the David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Prior to Brookings, Jenny served as Principal Economist at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Jenny, thanks for coming on to the program. Thanks for having me, Sam. A very general question to begin our conversation. Is there a shortage in housing in the United States? Well, when we talk about housing markets in the U.S., it's important to understand there isn't one national housing market. There are lots of local and regional markets. So there isn't a shortage nationally, but in high-cost areas, particularly on the east and west coasts, there is a shortage of housing. And those are some of the most productive regions of the country. So it's really concerning that people can't move to those areas as easily as they used to. Now, when you talk about you know those those localized shortages, if we were to look within a metropolitan area, you know, one of the areas that I study is multifamily housing, rental apartment buildings. Those are generally larger in scale, and we have seen meaningful construction, particularly for you know class A urban core high rise. Uh, where within the metropolitan area are we observing those shortages on the east and west coasts, principally? So it depends on which metropolitan area you're talking about. In places like San Francisco, the city of San Francisco has been building a lot of high-rise housing, but concentrated in a handful of neighborhoods, and that's a pretty typical pattern. Even within central cities, there tend to be high-income neighborhoods with high land values, but really low housing densities. Um, So if you think about, for instance, in Manhattan, uh, most of the Upper East Side and Greenwich Village, these are really valuable land markets, and yet most of the housing that's built there is low density, uh, row houses, maybe three or four stories at most, and much of that really can't be redeveloped, even though land markets would suggest that should actually be uh, high-rise apartments. I'm looking at some of your most recent research, which is available on the Brookings Institution website, and I'm particularly interested in uh, your most recent report on how we measure housing supply. And uh, in particular, you refer to housing churn as opposed to just you know, the construction of new homes. Could you walk us through a little bit about how it is that we uh, do and, and, and can optimize the way that we think about housing supply? Absolutely. So housing supply, we have to remember, is both a stock, the number of housing units that exist at a point in time, and the flow, so the change in units that are coming on and offline. And the stock is much larger than the flow. The flow is maybe around 6% of the existing stock uh, in a given year. 
the flow itself we can break down into additions to the housing stock and then units that are exiting. So most of the public focus on uh, metrics of housing flow tends to be new construction, the number of new building permits or uh, construction starts. That's certainly a substantial piece of um, the new housing coming online. But we also gain new housing when, for instance, commercial buildings like offices are converted into apartments or condominiums, um, changes in the, in the configuration of existing buildings. So, for instance, in older cities, we often see that a row house may be subdivided into multiple apartments or condos. Um, and so those are all different ways that houses can come online. The exit set strategy, houses can be demolished. Um, if they're damaged, they may be temporarily removed from stock until they're repaired. They may also be converted into non-residential uses um, or reconfigured to have fewer units. One piece of the of the housing supply that really tends to be fairly um, fairly specific to some geographies, in rural areas, especially in the South, mobile homes are a really large share of the housing stock, and those are tricky to track because they can be picked up and moved from one place to another. And so you see actually high rates of churn just because mobile homes move in and out of locations. So in a case uh, like New York, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11, through Liberty Bond uh, and other programs, a number of office buildings in uh, lower Manhattan were converted to you know, rental residential use. Is that going to be an example of Sort of one of those less obvious ways in which you know, we do get new housing supply that perhaps isn't counted in the official statistic. That's absolutely right. And those are the conversions from non-residential buildings are a pretty small share nationally, but they can be quite important locally, especially in places that are non-residential, so central business districts. Um, it, Lower Manhattan is a really good example because they had a lot of existing stock. It wasn't a particularly residential neighborhood. Um, and so you can get quite a number of housing units out of it without building any new structures. Downtown Los Angeles is another neighborhood that comes to mind that had lots of office buildings with very high vacancy rates. And at some point, those became converted into residential units, really changing the nature of the neighborhood and contributing large numbers of housing units that didn't exist before. So getting back to this question then of you know, whether or not, uh, you know, or the extent, I should say, of the supply shortage, uh, you had described how the flow uh, element of the flow in stock is something on the order of about 6%. Uh, as compared to your benchmarks or historic norms, uh, is that flow lower than, uh, than where we uh, might otherwise see? Yes. We find that the churn rate of housing has been decreasing pretty much since the late 1980s. So this is a fairly long-term trend. Um, and mostly that's driven by lower rates of new housing units coming online. So the losses are maybe around 2% each year, and that really hasn't changed that much. Um, but we, we map this out from about the mid-1980s until 2013, which is the most recent data. Um, housing additions in the late 80s hovered around uh, 5 or 6% of the stock. And by the end of the period um, in the recovery from the Great Recession, Additions were only marginally higher than losses, so in the 2 to 3% range. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Real Estate Hour on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Chandon, and my guest is Dr. Jenny Schutz. 
David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Metropolitan Policy at the Brookings Institution. We're talking about supply on the housing side of the market and some of the shortages that we face. Um, when we're looking at this, I mean, we've had guests on from National Association of Home Builders, from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, that have talked about you know some of the reasons behind why uh, we have seen a slowdown in new inventory additions. But you have a very unique perspective on this, and could you just elaborate for us a little bit on why it is that you know not just over the course course of the current expansion and the aftermath of the housing crisis, but as a longer-term trend, we have seen this relative slowdown. Sure. There are a couple things that are playing into that. One is that we're just using up the easy land. So it's easier and cheaper to build new housing in greenfield, so at the in the suburbs, at the fringe of the urban area. Um, and it's cheaper to build large quantities of housing at one time. So when home builders could go in and buy up 200 acres of land, subdivide it, and build uh, a subdivision of single-family houses and townhouses, that's by far the cheapest way to produce uh, per unit of housing. We've sort of used up the land that's closest to the urban fringe as far as people are willing to drive um, for their daily commute. We've used up a lot of the big parcels of land. So what you have left are either... Uh, small parcels of land, which are going to be less efficient per unit to develop, or you've got infill sites, which are just much more complicated to work with. Um, So that's on sort of the land availability. And that's just a natural process of building out the urban areas. Um, On the other side, though, costs of development have been going up. And this is largely because of policy choices that local governments have been making. So local governments, particularly in these high cost areas, the Northeast Corridor and the West Coast, keep ratcheting up the difficulty of development by imposing more land use regulations. These can be anything from restrictions on the density of new housing, impact fees that developers have to pay when they build, um, sort of implicit taxes uh, for infrastructure investments or affordable housing, um, and just procedural requirements that give communities more power to weigh in over proposed developments. So the cumulative effect of all of these local regulations is that it's much more complicated and more expensive and more uncertain to build housing than it used to be. And all of those costs get passed on to the purchasers of the finished housing. Now, is it the intent of the increased local regulation to limit the supply? uh, or, Or is that an unintended consequence? In some cases, that's exactly the intended consequence. Um, So many older, uh, longer-term homeowners bought into a relatively low-density small community in the suburbs, and they liked it as it was, and really don't want it to grow. So we're facing a lot of pressure in the suburbs that have thought of themselves as sort of small bedroom communities, but they're now close enough to the job centers that they really need to transition to being more urban centers, higher density, Um, And it it only makes sense to build new housing if you can do it at fairly high density. So building townhouses instead of single family or garden apartments instead of townhouses, or in some cases, even building higher rise apartments and condominiums. So when we think about, you know, the other side of this, not the local land use regulation, but sort of this natural growth in cities uh, and, and are having sort of used up the supply of, you know, land that's you know very close into the urban core um you know and, and that being really manifested in you know people's willingness to to drive to work or the, or their commuting patterns you know is uh you know uh, public investment in infrastructure and in public transportation, uh, you know, the, uh, the zoning that allows for transit-oriented communities, you know, does this play a role then in potentially driving better outcomes? 
It could if we linked housing and transportation infrastructure together, uh, which currently we really don't do. Um, so if you think about the places that have been building out their transportation infrastructure, um, you know, we obviously have older systems um, in most of the northeast cities in Chicago. Um, but for instance, the Washington, D.C. metro has only been built out since about the 80s. Many of the um, some of the suburban sites have densified and allowed uh, additional growth to happen, but not all of them. Um, the San Francisco BART system has a similar problem. They have built these lines out into the suburbs, but they haven't increased the density allowed um, by zoning around the stations. So you've got a BART station surrounded by an ocean of surface parking, and then you've transitioned directly into low-density single-family houses. People aren't going to walk a mile and a half from their single family house to get to a BART station. And so you've really limited growth exactly in the locations where we should be building more density. So in terms of policy prescriptions and the things that we might advocate for, would it make sense, does it make sense to try and link investments in public infrastructure and transportation more closely to you know, the drivers of housing outcomes? It absolutely makes sense. It's harder to do than you might think uh, because the funding streams and the authority for the, the planning and the authority for implementing this usually go through different government agencies. So most of the transit funding for big infrastructure projects, a big chunk of it comes from the federal government, uh, but through the Department of Transportation. Some of it will come through state governments as well. Um, and the authority for zoning and land use is almost exclusively held by local governments. We just haven't had coordination between the local governments and the states. The federal government hasn't tied um, changes in land use to any of the federal funds that they put out. That would be one thing the federal government could do um, is require um, higher density around any transit infrastructure. In California, we've seen a particularly interesting battle play out between the states and localities with the recent um, SB 827. That was a proposed bill to increase density around transit stations to allow five-story buildings by right, um, even if that wasn't allowed under local zoning. It was a hugely controversial bill and got defeated in committee um, this past week. Based on what you're describing, and I certainly understand that the difficulties and challenges of trying to coordinate across different levels of government, uh, let alone between you know, local, public, and private partners, uh, what are the prospects for any kind of relief over the next few years? Do the supply shortages you know, get a little bit worse? Uh, do, does that you know, further erode affordability for American families? What's your outlook? The supply shortages are going to continue until we deal with the politics of the situation. The economics in this case are actually quite simple. We should be building more, we should be building higher density, and we should be building it in locations that are close to transportation and job centers. Politically, this is a really tough nut to crack. I'm glad to see that some of the states, California and Massachusetts, are stepping up and acknowledging that this is a problem. I think it's going to take leadership that we haven't seen before from the state level in order to really make a difference there. You know, one interesting question, we've got a number of governor's races happening this year. I'm curious whether in any of the high cost states, candidates for governor are going to take a position uh, during the campaign and come out and say, affordability is a problem that we have to tackle. The state is going to have to work with localities to figure out some sort of compromise. 
Yeah, gosh, the, the number of times the economics are clear, but the politics are clouded. Uh, how much easier would our lives be? Now, you, you exactly. have yourself been an outspoken critic of, uh, or have offered an outspoken critique, let's say, of some recent developments at, at housing and urban development. I was uh, fascinated last night reading your blog post from last month uh, titled By Word and By Deed. Uh, ben Carson is abdicating HUD's uh, historic responsibilities. Uh, could you take a couple of minutes to walk us through some of your concerns about the direction that, that HUD is taking right right now? Sure. The particular um, words or engagement that uh, raised questions before, um, HUD was changing its, has proposed changing its mission statement to remove a couple of key words um, that it's committed to creating inclusive, sustainable communities. Um, And in particular, that it seems to be backing away from really trying to enforce um, fair housing in an affirmative way. So the the department is legally required to combat discrimination when it's brought to their attention. But I think the Trump administration across a number of departments has really signaled very clearly they're not that interested in supporting civil rights um, and particularly in combating discrimination, either in housing markets or labor markets. Um, We still have really big differences in housing market outcomes between Uh, non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics, and African-Americans in particular. Um, And so for the federal government to say, we're not really concerned that, for instance, the black homeownership rate is roughly half that of the white homeownership rate. This just isn't a problem that we see, you know, our, our role in getting into. That's quite disturbing. And for folks uh, who are listening in that may be on the commercial real estate side of this or, or in the, you know, the market rate, uh, you know, single family side, just as a little bit of context. Tell us about the Fair Housing Act. Sure. The Fair Housing Act um, was enacted 50 years ago in 1968, and it prohibits discrimination in all housing market transactions on the basis of race, color, nationality, um, and gender. Um, And it was really intended to combat uh, discriminatory mortgage lending, um, redlining practices, um, steering by real estate agents. So black families and white families would be shown units in different kinds of neighborhoods. Um, private sector landlords would deny renting apartments uh, to African-American families. Um, and so, you know, we've we've essentially outlawed this um, uh, with the Fair Housing Act. But of course, it depends on enforcement. Um, and the federal government is primarily responsible for doing this. Without a federal government that's really interested in identifying cases seeing them through the court system um, and making an example of offenders to discourage this, we're likely to have more overt discrimination. Um, even in the absence of overt discrimination, because there are differences in income and wealth between whites and blacks and Hispanics, black and Hispanic families just don't have access to the same quality housing and the same quality neighborhoods. Right. So when we do talk about enforcement under the current administration, just as another point of context, while we've certainly gone you know, back and forth on the political spectrum, is it fair to say that in general, previous administrations have gotten behind the Fair Housing Act and its enforcement? So all the, all of the administrations are required under law to enforce the Fair Housing Act, but they choose the resources to devote to that, with how many cases they actually want to prosecute and how far to push them. Um, the big difference between this administration and the Obama administration, the Obama administration said just enforcing um, the law against overt discrimination hasn't closed the gap in housing outcomes. And therefore, we need to affirmatively further for housing. So they passed a new rule um, that would have put more 
uh, emphasis on, for instance, federal funds for low-income housing going into neighborhoods of high opportunity, so neighborhoods with good quality public schools, low crime rates, access to jobs. Um, and that was partly intended to combat this exclusionary zoning with by local governments, um, if low-income families can't afford to move into higher-income places because of zoning, then the op- economic opportunities are systematically denied to certain families. Right, so we just have about 30 seconds left. I want to get a quick punchline from you so folks understand the importance of this. Do, does lower home ownership uh, for Black and Hispanic families in the United States, does it impact families' ability to build wealth? It absolutely does. Traditionally, homeownership has been the way that most families have had their largest single financial asset. If you can't buy a house or if you buy it later in life or if you can only buy in lower value neighborhoods, that's going to have a huge impact on a family's wealth, not just in this generation, but their ability to pass on wealth to their kids. Jenny, thank you so much for coming on to the program. Thank you, Sam. That was the Brookings Institution's Dr. Jenny Schutz, co-author of Unpacking the Housing Shortage Puzzle, How Does Housing Enter and Exit the Supply? You can find that report and others on the Brookings Institution website. Once again, I'm your host, Sam Chandon. Thanks so much for joining us. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.